Welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hagen, coming to you this Tuesday, as every Tuesday, with our stories of the weird, historical, um, random, whatever <laughs> whatever the case may be. Always good stuff. Uh, Jenny is the one that has been checking out a topic, doing some research. I have no idea what we're about to talk about. So, as always, Jenny's going to give me some clues, see if I can figure this out. So, uh, so what is the topic today? I got hit with the This Day in History article, and I'm telling you what, I was like, what? <laughs> and I should have known about it because it's a movie, but like, I don't, I always thought the movie was fake. I didn't realize it was real. <laughs> so this, this sets us off on a good tone. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. Well, here's your hint. All right. It involves the 60s, a train in England. Wow, the sixties, a train in England. That's that's a lot. Uh well damn, I don't know. Um this is not ringing any bells for me. So I if literally there are zero more hints I can give you because it just absolutely <laughs> gives it away. Um it involves train. the largest train in history, largest train blank in history. Trying here. Okay, this is clearly a train robbery I have never heard of, so I don't know what this is. So, yes, it is the largest train robbery in history, and it's called The Great Train Robbery. Okay, I've heard of the name of that movie. Right, (laughs) I assumed it was something about, like, the 1880s West or something. I did not know it had anything to do with the 60s in England. That's exactly what I thought. I thought it was an 1800s like Western movie. Yeah, I just thought it was, you know, bandits hijacking a train out West somewhere. No. So it's been 60 years. So August 8th of 1963, which was 60 years ago, 15 men, which is an enormous amount of co-conspirators. Yeah. Yeah. Everything I always see is like three guys jumping a train. Right. Yeah. This is a huge number of people involved. So there's 15 guys and they raid the postal train as it passes through a small town and make off with what today is worth $58 million. Wow. So that doesn't split it into very much per person. But here's the story. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you'd still probably end up with a couple million a piece. Three or four plus million a piece or something if it's 15, right? So. Right. The train at the center of the great train robber robbery is at railway bridge in Ledburn, England. So early in the morning, the train is traveling from Scotland to England and it suddenly is stopped at a red signal in a small village. The train's co-engineer kind of steps out, looks around, masked men kid are like can, yeah, masked men attack him and take control of the train. And that's okay. when they a bunch of shit. So it's 3 a.m. They're out here in the middle of nowhere. It's uh, near I say nowhere. But it's England. There's there's yeah. towns close yeah. by. So it's near <laughs> Chet- Cheddington, England. Um, okay. And like I said, the co-engineer of the train, David Whitby, jumps from the lead car because he's like, what is going on? What's this signal that's delaying us? And when he gets close, he sees a glove laying on the light. And he's like, what the hell? And then he notices that there's a battery hanging from it. And he's like, what the hell? 
So he turns around and goes to make a phone call to the rail line to see what's going on and realizes the phone lines are cut. Hmm. If this isn't the start of a horror movie, I don't know what is. Yeah. So he's confused, uncertain, and he's like, I'm going to go back to the train. This doesn't feel right. Good instinct, buddy. So he starts back and all of a sudden hands grab him and he's told, if you shout, I'll kill you. And he's like, excuse me. (laughs) And at this point, a bunch of guys pop out of the shadows. They're all wearing masks and they walk him back to the lead car where the head engineer is waiting for him, unaware of what's going on, just thinking that he's checking out this light. So these guys rush into the car and then they beat them over the head until they're unconscious. Ouch. Very scary. So after they seize control of the lead car, they detach the first two cars from the 12 car train. At this point, they realize they have a problem. The robber in their ranks assigned with learning to drive a train realized that the male locomotive was a little bit more complex than they had originally prepped for. Hmm. So they needed the head engineer to wake up that they had just knocked unconscious. (laughs) (laughs) So they recognize this as an immediate issue. And what they do is they wake this poor man up from his beaten to unconsciousness. He's half dazed. And they tell him that he has to drive the train a half a mile down the track as he's standing there bleeding and like concussed. Yeah. So they should have gone with the tie them up first thing, huh? Right. There's options you could have gone with first, but I think they were afraid the longer that they were conscious, the more easily they'd be identified. Yeah. So they get about um, half a mile down the track. And at this point, there's a bunch of masked people awaiting the train's arrival. Um, And it's at the Brigido Bridgego Bridge in Ledburn. So we've got all these guys that just kind of appear out of the darkness, which is really creepy. Um, Mm -hmm. And they have a bunch of tools and they force the second car doors open. Inside, there's people, right? This isn't just like a funzy one-off knocking out two. So they have to knock out the staff members that are inside of there. And they quickly form a human chain and transport money from the train to their vehicles. This must be a ton of money, you think, right? Uh Uh-huh. 120 sacks of cash. Wow. So they get it out of the train and into three vehicles, a military truck and two Range Rovers. So if it's not clear by now, this is not a crime of opportunity. They obviously had planned this well. Mm -hmm. The weekend prior to the theft, there had been a bank holiday. So (laughs) what's that mean? The bank didn't have time to send their deposits. So they had extra money, extra cash extra envelopes Mm -hmm. so the guys knew that that deposit hadn't been made and they knew that this robbery would be extra lucrative as a result less than a half an hour after stopping the train they made out with what was at that point 2.6 million pounds which like i said is 58 million in modern money and later a guard patrolling the other 10 cars which were still just sitting there near cheddington Mm -hmm. was like sitting here (laughs) for a really long time like it's been like an hour maybe someone should check on this because he didn't realize that they'd been separated yeah so he starts to freak out realizes they've been separated and he's able to contact authorities because he realizes there's a big damn problem so scotland yard gets involved of course they do they're Mm -hmm. near scotland right (laughs) and 
this seems like an impossible task to solve this. You've got people that can't identify anybody. There's so many, (laughs) so many people involved in it. There's no witnesses. There's masks on everybody. So there's no clue either where they went after they took the money. It just, they disappeared. According to um, the police, one of the people who's leaving the train, one of the masked people, told the poster workers in the second car that they couldn't call the cops for 30 minutes until after they had left. So the cops were like, maybe that means that they're within a 30-minute radius of where we're at, right? Mm -hmm. So immediately they start canvassing local neighborhoods. They start pulling up files on past offenders and they start to stake out homes that just seem suspicious. <laughs> I I don't know what's suspicious in rural England. Yeah. It all seems pretty idyllic, but I'm sure that it's not to someone. <laughs> but I'd like to know what that means. <laughs> yeah. Somebody somebody has a military truck and two Range Rovers outside their house. I, don't know. I guess. Um Big shocker, based on the description of what I just gave you, they didn't get anywhere. (laughs) So they're back at square one. Um, So they are like, okay, let's now investigate the crime scene really, really well. So given eyewitness testimony, they're confident whoever planned this crime probably had an inside perspective of mail and Mm -hmm. how it's transported on the railway. Because they knew a couple of things. Number one, They knew when the train was headed through with money. Number two, which car contains the cash, how little security there is on the train, and exactly the right place to stop a train to not be caught. Yeah. So the cops are working this theory, and they get a really important lead. Um, A couple of days after the crime, a herdsman living about 20 miles from the scene telephoned the police after becoming suspicious of the nearby Leather Slade farm. He'd seen a bunch of people coming in and out around hours that were pretty weird surrounding the robbery. And of course, the cops are like, okay, this is a real tip. So they show up um, and they find just a ton of clues in the farmhouse. Hmm. Even before they get inside, they found 20 empty mailbags on the ground. And one of the getaway vehicles in the yard was sitting there. Wow. One of the getaway vehicles in the crime was sitting in the yard. That's the right sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they were excited. I mean, this is exciting news. And inside the home, they found interesting things. They found things like sleeping bags, food, and games. <laughs> they didn't want to get bored, man. Yep. The robbers did attempt to wipe their fingerprints from the home. However, they did get fingerprints from a game of Monopoly and a ketchup bottle. (laughs) So they have evidence now. um, So they slowly start to apprehend robbers one by one. So the first person that they catch is Roger Cordry. He's a florist from Bournemouth. (laughs) The landlord tips off the police after he has given her rent payments three months in advance. Because he did not want to have to worry about it and didn't want to realize that he was going to blow through his money. After he's arrested, they look for known associates and they end up capturing 12 more robbers. So we're up to 13. Nice. We got Gordon Goody, Charlie Wilson, Roy James, John Daly, Brian Field, Leonard Field, John Weeder, Ronnie Biggs, Tommy Wisby, Jim Huzzy. William Bull and Bob Welch. 
So they all face trial for the great train robbery with all but five receiving sentences of 30 years in prison. Um, They did acquit John Daly, however, of a crime because they had insufficient evidence to hold him. Okay. Lucky. He got off lucky. (laughs) 30 years in prison seems like a long time to these guys though. And as in many cases from around this time period, apparently prison is fairly easy to get out of at this time. (laughs) His two of the boys, Charlie Wilson and Ronnie Biggs escape from prison. Nice. Wilson um, had his associates help him escape to Canada for a long time before they caught him and shipped him back to England. And then Ronnie Biggs escapes prison by scaling a wall and jumping into a furniture truck. (laughs) He flees to France, Australia, and then finally Brazil. And he managed to evade authorities until 2001 when he eventually was in such poor health and he knew he was going to get arrested, um, but he needed to go back to England for medical treatments. Okay. And so he did that so that he didn't have to pay for medical treatments is what my understanding is. Makes sense. There's a nice argument for socialized medicine. If it's right. <laughs> if it's good enough for known criminals to need to just go ahead and go back to prison to return to it, it can't be all that bad. I mean, it must not be, right? <laughs> <laughs> Came back for the national health. It's all it's all good. Now, interestingly enough, the one person missing from this story is the ringleader. Aha! Uh-huh. So yeah, we still have two unleft accounted for, right? Well. We were up to 13. Yeah, two left unaccounted for. Yep. Um, so the ringleader was caught five years after the crime. He was sentenced to only 10 years in prison. <laughs> he only organized it. He didn't assault people from the sounds of it, right? Yeah. And at this point, they still don't know who the postal service informant is. Nice. Right. So here's the story of Bruce Reynolds from his son, Nick Reynolds, who was living with him in Mexico because his dad was on the run for so long and he had no idea. Hmm. So they're living in Mexico. It's 1966. Nick Reynolds, the son, had no idea how unique things were and how comfortable their life in South America always was even though they were constantly under threat and he had no idea. So he just recently did this news article 60 years later, right? Yeah. And he said he thought that the strange things he noticed were strange because he had a long held belief that his dad was a heroic spot spy like James Bond. Yeah. Um, so as part of his interview, he shared leather letters. His dad sent him while in jail following the captures after five years on the run. And basically, these letters include things like his schoolwork, being nice to his mom, and telling his son how proud of him he is. Um, it's interesting because he would visit his dad in prison. He got these really great letters. They had a really close bond. Um, and they were extremely close to begin with because they spent so much time together while he was on the run. <laughs> well, there you go. It's whatever right? family should do. Exactly. That's how you stay close. Mm -hmm. And in an interesting thing, he was like, when he was in jail, I went to see him when he was in different prisons all over the country, which I think is a fascinating aspect of prison 
is how frequently prisoners are moved from one spot to another. Hmm. You know, I always have that picture of like Alcatraz or Leavenworth in my mind. Once you're in, you're in. Yeah. I just thought you went somewhere and rotted basically. No, apparently it's quite common to be transferred a lot. Um, I've noticed it in several of the stories that we've done that they're transferred multiple times. So he talks about how they would travel all over the country to see his dad in prison, including one that was like a horrible old castle. Um, It's Mm -hmm. Durham prison. And he said he could remember hearing like boots on the floor and the sound of the keys rattling in the prison cell, like just very descriptive things. So here's the story that he heard based put together from what his dad tells him, right? Mm -hmm. He knows that they moved with his mom and him to Mexico. He was 18 months old at the time of the robbery. He said he never picked up on any of the stress or panic that one would like what we as outsiders would expect people to feel in a life on the run. Yeah. He says, I realized he was probably looking over his shoulder and he was on high alert at all times that there was any indication that he might have had his identity scoped. But this kiddo never caught up on any of that. It always seemed very relaxed, like they were on a really long holiday. And like I said, he thought his dad was a spy. So the reason he thought his dad was a spy was because they all had a bunch of different identities. Yeah. His dad had a bunch of passports. He said he had different names. There were five that he could remember. So he was about seven years old. Hmm. And he remembered having at least five different identities. Nice. Um, He talked about he would watch his dad go scuba diving and he could see him in the glass bottom boats in Mexico. And it just seemed like he was very James Bondish, right? Like he's, he's adventurous. He's got these different identities and they were extremely privileged. That was another big indicator that dad might be a spy. So here's an example. He says life in Mexico was really good. I'm extremely privileged. It wasn't rare though, for my dad to say to my mom, do you want a steak? And then they'd fly to Las Vegas for a steak dinner. (laughs) Or they would get bored and they would go see Frank Sinatra in Vegas in the front row. Sinatra even once dedicated a song to his mom calling her the Green Hornet because she was wearing a green silk dress. So, like, she had to have been totally bowled over as well, right? Like, treated like a queen. Also, Vegas to Mexico probably isn't that far, is it? Yeah, and also, I mean, this guy at least seems to be doing it right. I mean, if you're going to rob a train and get some millions of dollars, like... He's living well, like, you know, treating his family well, enjoying his time, having some steaks, hanging out with his kid, you know? Yeah. It's about the most wholesome on the run story I've heard. So, Right. So I guess that they basically just kind of traveled a bit as a family, go from South America to Canada. They went to France one time um, and one time went to to England because why not? Him to fade a little, right? But they were in Torquay, 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 Mm I don't know, in 1968 when uh, his dad's finally arrested. And he's arrested by Deputy Chief Superintendent Tommy Butler. And Nick says he remembers it really clearly. 7 a.m., the doorbell rings and his dad shouts, can you get that? So he does. He opens the door and 30 policemen come crashing in. (laughs) And his dad comes into the room with Detective Chief Superintendent Tommy Butler. And his dad... Honest to God, the skill that life criminals have to just be chill about things is beyond what I would have. So his dad turns to him and says, 
I've been a very naughty boy and I'm going to have to go away for a while as he's being arrested. (laughs) So this guy goes, okay, sure. So he gets arrested and he goes into his dad's bedroom and in the bedroom, he's there listening to the officer talk to his dad. And the officer says, well, Bruce, it's been a long time. And dad replies, say la vie, Tom. (laughs) And then he goes, any chance we can cut a deal? And the cop looks at him and goes, nope, I've had so many holidays following tip-offs on the place you've been. If it comes out, I've wasted taxpayers' money chasing a lesser person. I'll get it in the neck. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes, you've made me a really good cop, though. And the dad replies, well, you know what? You'd have made a really good thief. (laughs) (laughs) So he's extradited back to England. And in 1969, he's sentenced to 25 years in jail, serving 10 of those. And his son says he's basically treated like a superstar in prison. People send him steaks. I would like to know about prison in England. Yeah. Can you just get a steak in the mail? <laughs> he says yeah, he was be eating better than the screws were. I think by yeah. screws, he means the uh, prison yeah, guards, guards, by the way. Yep. Yeah. I'm boning up on my lingo here. But unfortunately, Watch Shawshank Redemption recently. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Okay. Okay. Good for you. That's a good movie. Yep. So sadly, Bruce dies in 2013 at the age of 81 years old. Um, and his son says, I never resented him for those 10 years in prison. They were tough, but it wasn't too much of a price to pay for the life that I had gotten to live. I had a really great relationship with my dad. He made a superhuman effort to maintain that re- relationship as long as he could. And the bond was pretty tight up until he died. He told him at one point the train robbery had been an albatross around my neck. And Nick says, I'm 61 now and I'm still referred to as the son of Bruce Reynolds. So it's sometimes (laughs) like irksome. Uh, He says, I was never really interested in the robbery when I was younger. It wasn't until my dad wrote his book that I got involved and it's greatly affected my life. Not really in a negative way, but there's been ups and downs. So the conclusion of the whole story, though, is really kind of a sad thing. Um, Following the crimes and incarcerations, several robbers were go on to meet pretty violent ends. Um, So you've got Buster Edwards, who commits suicide in the 90s. Charlie Wilson was shot to death by a hitman in Spain. And Brian Field and his family passed in a car crash. They are not the only ones that were traumatized. Um, Jack Mills and David Whitby, who were the two that were beaten, the engineer and the first uh, mate. That's mm-hmm. not right. First engine man. I don't remember. Um, so Jack Mills never really fully recovered from his head injuries. He suffered with headaches until he died in the 70s. And David Whitby, who was the one that found the glove on the ground and was first nabbed. Yeah. He was so traumatized by the events, they believed that it caused a heart attack, and he ended up dying at the age of 34. Oh, wow. Yeah, PTSD is a real scary thing. Um, And while it's a really fascinating story, because this is a lot of people, there's a lot of people to get together. Yeah. The biggest impact, of course, is on those that lived this story. So that's the story of the Great Train Robbery. It was quick. um, Yeah, that's... And weird. Yeah, that is interesting. I'm definitely going to have to look up that movie now because I I did not know that it was a thing. I just, yeah. 
Yeah. So let's go down the rabbit hole and just kind of talk about things around this. Yeah. So this was not the first successful mail train raid in Britain. Apparently, various bandits had been travel had been targeting traveling post offices several times before. Um, so security was pretty tightened on a lot of high value carriages. Bars were added, bolts were added, and alarms were installed. But it did not stop them. These attempts to increase security were basically useless that night because the three carriages usually available on the route with additional security features were out of service. Hmm. Was this an odd coincidence? Unknown. Because it had never occurred before the night of the train robbery. Nice. (laughs) So this is an additional reason why they think there must have been an insider at the post office and they never identified that person. I'm impressed nobody else ever gave them up. Right? Yeah. So the post office has their own investigation team. I don't know if you knew this. I just know this from, uh, at least in the U.S., from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> That's yeah. whole episode. That's exactly where Instagram. I know it from, Will. Yeah. So they did work on this investigation along with the Metropolitan Police um, and along with the British Transport Police. Never did crack the case, obviously. The post office investigation branch, or the IB, took witness statements from the 77 post office staff on board the train, including the five that got their asses handed to them when they just popped in with 15 extra guys and took all the money out. Yeah. Anybody who happened to live in or near the vicinity of the home of a suspected robber was interviewed. They would even go as far as to trace the genealogy of employees who shared surnames with the robbers. <laughs> so that they had one post office employee whose family tree was traced back to a Victorian Norwich in attempts to identify a link between him and a suspected robber. But they never did find a shared um, investigation. But they sure tried. They sure That's tried. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, it just makes me wonder, like, if they were being smart, then maybe, you know, they would have had one of the people that they beat up be be the insider. But Nope, say, never gave him up. I'm going to get my four million, but, you know, you're going to beat me up when you get on the train so that, yeah. Right. Like, that's what normally would happen in movies and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. They also looked at expenditures of post office staff for months after the robbery. So anything that was an an unusually large purchase, they investigated greatly. So, for example, uh, Thomas Penn, who was on board in the high-value packet carriage on the night of the robbery, bought a car in 1964. (laughs) And they were super suspicious, but they eventually determined it wasn't a suspicious purchase. (laughs) He saved up and bought himself a car. Right? He just bought himself a car. It was time, right? Yeah. One of the things that really played into their ability to get away with shit was fake news, surprisingly. Um, Deliberate misinformation was fed to the public Hmm. from, I would assume, robbers to the media, but unknown. So stories like Nazi involvement were made up to increase interest in the story while they were negotiating book deals. (laughs) Nice. Uh, And then, of course, you got 
speculation, then once these kinds of stories start to get out, everybody starts to speculate about gang associates. And eventually they have to like state to the press that tanks, bombs, and what I believe are known as limited atomic weapons could have been used to spring people from prison that got away. <laughs> uh, that sounds a little, little overboard. Just a little. Um, apparently, though, Madame Tussaud thought it was pretty funny that these two guys escaped from prison, so she displayed their waxwork figures for like 20 years in her museums. Nice. You know, one might as well, right? Yeah. yeah, this is just one of those things that I guess just didn't culturally cross over for me as a, you know, obviously a huge thing in the UK, but just something I've just never really heard of. So, All right. Well, I'm going to give you the final reason why both you and I are totally out on the loop of this, but it's mm-hmm. super funny. So the two guys that got away initially that didn't get arrested with the main group, the first one, Ronnie Biggs, mm-hmm. produced music with the Sex Pistols while living in Brazil. <laughs> and nice. then the second, Bruce Reynolds, appeared in a Britpop music video called Your Smile dressed as a train guard in 1995. <laughs> there you go. So there you have it. It's a great train robbery. It's a little salty. It's a little weird. Nice. Yeah, no, that's that's that is interesting. That is, yeah, I'm gonna have to look it all up because I, it's all new to me. Yeah, just fascinating what people got away with. Yeah, no, that's wild. But uh, yeah, no, cool story. So, yeah, thanks for that one, and thank you everybody for listening this week. You know, as always, uh, rate, subscribe, review, tell your friends about our podcast, and uh, we will talk to you all again in a week. Bye. Bye. Folks.